Alright, well we're not going to be returning to the book of Luke this week. I don't know if Pastor Bill warned you about that last week or not, but he asked me if I would speak about some of the church's fundamental and core beliefs concerning God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, humanity, and salvation. And these are outlined in our membership manual, but what Bill wanted me to do was just flesh them out a little bit. And we have other core beliefs as well that Bill is going to teach us next week. So I only have to get through these five. That's a wide range to complete in one sermon. I'm going to do my best, and I thought it would be good to just start with humanity and then work my way from human beings to God and all the rest. So my opening text this morning is going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 26 and 27. So this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And it would be difficult, I think, to unpack everything that's meant by those words created in God's image. But the story indicates that we as human beings are endowed with abilities which enable us to carry out what you might call a godlike role in the creation. Abilities which have enabled us to have dominion over the other material creations that God brought into existence in this passage. And... I think experience confirms, of course, what the scripture here indicates, and that is that human beings are certainly set apart from every other animal that we encounter on this planet. We are the only creature, for example, that makes claims about the universe. We're the only creature to our knowledge that has significant knowledge of other creatures and how they function. And when you look at art and science, etc., it just is abundantly apparent that there is something different about us that would be very difficult to account for on purely naturalistic and evolutionary grounds. And... Humanity in the creation story that we just looked at is basically the crowning piece of 
the story, given a position of prominence. We are the climax, you might say, of the creation account. And in that regard, we have a good deal to boast about. However, though we might boast that we are the chief of God's material creation, according to Scripture, we are also the chief of all sinners. And if we have a good deal to boast about, we have a lot more to be humble about. And we believe that God created human beings good. But through disobedience, humanity, we believe, collapsed into spiritual ruin. What is known as original sin or the fall of man. And basically, this is the belief that we all of us at birth are infected by sin. In other words, we don't have to be taught to be deceitful, to be malicious, to be unloving, that these come naturally to us in our condition. And this is known as human wickedness. Now, this puts us at a little bit of a disadvantage when we're preaching the gospel to modern people. And C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, points out that the earliest pagans that heard the gospel, even the pagans, would have had some sense of deserving, and that's the key word, deserving the divine anger and the divine wrath. There were people who knew to some degree that they were mortally sick and that they needed forgiveness and that they needed you might say, salvation. We're in a different position. You see, to them, the good news could be preached. The good news of a Savior can be brought to people who recognize that they need salvation. But a good number of modern people find the whole idea of human wickedness to be repellent and masochistic and unnecessary that we're being a little bit too hard on the human race because given our circumstances, we've done about as good as anyone can expect. And I want to make it abundantly clear that anybody who thinks like that is not ready to receive the gospel. This is such a key doctrine of Christianity. The Bible teaches unambiguously that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need forgiveness and we need a Savior. And so God, from before the foundations of the world, of course, knew all of this was going to take place, entered into human history in a special way, to redeem us. Now, when I say God, who am I talking about? We believe that God is the supreme personal being who created the universe and is distinct from the universe 
and yet sustains the universe in existence. This is important because it saves us from making two mistakes that human beings have made in the past. One of them is called pantheism. And this is the belief that God and the universe are identical. The universe was not created by God because the universe is God. And so in that sense, there's no real individuality either because all of us are just appearances or parts of this God who is the universe. The other mistake it saves us from is called deism. And this became popular during the Enlightenment after physicists like Isaac Newton were able to come up with a mathematical interpretation of nature. And so human beings began to see nature as a kind of machine that operated under unalterable laws. And once we saw nature as that, it became possible to think of God as the God who built the machine and started it, but then more or less walked away from it. He doesn't really concern himself with the petty affairs of human beings. He's not going to listen to prayer or anything of that nature. And so against these two mistakes, we assert that God is the creator, distinct from the universe, who is personal, whose essence is love, and who cares deeply for every creature that he has made. And we believe that this God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, and we believe that this being is one being, we believe in one God, who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was this second person in the Trinity. So we've hit man, I've talked about God, and now I want to talk about Jesus. It's this second person in the Trinity who we believe in some way that we can't really fathom took on human flesh. The way that John's Gospel begins is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And this Word, this Logos, is what we believed became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make it clear that prior to the Incarnation, God had not left Himself without a witness among humanity. He had His chosen people Israel, and within Israel, he gave revelations to people that were known as prophets like Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, and these prophets would speak the oracles of God. They were like the mouthpieces of the divine, telling the Israelites that they needed to repent and that they needed to be a light for the other nations. And unfortunately, human beings being in the condition that we are in, were not eager to heed what the prophets were telling them. 
And oftentimes, these men of God were abused, they were beaten, and tradition maintains that some of them were even killed. And God so loved the world that he decided that he would himself take on human form in the person of Jesus Christ, who we believe is 100% fully God, of one substance with God, and yet 100% fully human, of the same substance as any human being except without sin. And what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10 is that He came... Though he was God, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the way that he accomplished our redemption was by suffering death on a Roman cross and on the Sunday following that crucifixion, coming out of the grave alive. And I think I want to make it clear that we believe that this act of God in human history is what makes salvation possible. In other words, salvation is not possible because a 7th century Arabian self-proclaimed prophet who started the religion of Islam started preaching monotheism. It's not possible because people became disciples of Moses and faithfully kept the Torah or the law that God handed down. It's not possible if we forsake all our possessions and and lead a life of poverty like the Buddha did. The only thing that makes our redemption possible is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, I understand that this is a doctrine that is repellent to many a modern person. And by the way, I would say that for my own part, I do sympathize with people who struggle with this doctrine that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. But I would want to say that this problem that people have comes back to what I was talking about earlier. It comes back to this issue that people don't believe they need a Savior. You see, when a man is dying of thirst in the wilderness, he's not going to quarrel with the way in which God chooses to give him water. He's going to take it. And if you're here this morning and you realize the impossibility of fulfilling the law, if you realize your need for forgiveness, we have to understand that no amount of good works can wipe away our sins. No amount of personal suffering can wipe away our sins. Even if we suffer to all eternity, that would not make up for one unjust word that we have spoken. Time does not wipe away our sins. 
the only thing that cleanses us from our sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. And what the scripture says is that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, and that means recognizing that Jesus has absolute authority over every area of our life, if we confess that that's true, and if we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And this was God's plan of redemption for humanity. And we believe that the kingdom is coming. That God's kingdom, in a sense, has already arrived and is already among us because Jesus, before he left, promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but he would send the Comforter. And we believe that when we sincerely put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again, or as the old reformers said, regenerated. We are given the Spirit of God. And it's the power of that indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to carry out whatever God has called us to do. The Holy Spirit endows us with specific gifts that are not for our benefit, but are for the benefit of the kingdom. And what we are supposed to do now, as followers of Jesus Christ, is through the power and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, do our best to make the church shine like a city on the hill so that the world will see it and come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I would just encourage us to remember that it, this mission is not limited to clergy or paid pastoral staff. We all of us have something that God has called us to do. And it's the power of the Spirit that enables us to do it. It's the Spirit that convicts us of sin and that guides us into a knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, I thank you for the day that you've given us, and I thank you for the gift of life, and I pray that we would go beyond just intellectually accepting the truth. I pray that we would, by your power, live the truth. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.